0: This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. January 26th, 2023, the DeSantis University edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. I'm joined... From New York, slightly better, slightly less the worse for wear, better for wear, John Dickerson of CBS Prime Time. Hello, John. Hello, David,
1: and hello to all those wonderful people who have uh, commiserated with my herniated disc and sent tips and ideas. And uh, as David says, we now have a second night in the new year that was um,
0: considered to be one in which I actually slept. Huzzah. And Emily is uh, out this week, but no worries. Josie Duffy Rice, GabFest regular, joins us from Atlanta. Josie is many things, but she's also the host of the new podcast, Unreformed. Josie, hello. How are you?
2: Hi, I'm so excited to be back.
0: This week on the GabFest, the disturbing alliance between Marjorie Taylor Greene and speaker Kevin McCarthy and what that signifies Then Ron DeSantis's bold attack on a flagship public college in Florida and his effort to turn it into a conservative bastion, and also the various other things he's trying to do to education in Florida. And then Congress flayed Ticketmaster and Live Nation in a hearing this week. Should that entertainment ticketing conglomerate be broken up? Should the antitrust guys get loose against it? Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. Marjorie Taylor Greene, chief of the Jewish space lasers and death threats against Democrats, has not merely been restored to committee assignments in the new Republican majority in the House. She is now a confidant and close ally of Speaker Kevin McCarthy, according to the New York Times. The Times reported on their new kinship and its implications for how much, for how extensively the far, 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 far right representatives in the House GOP caucus could take Republicans. John, why are Green and McCarthy such close buddies, kind of unexpectedly? She was quite by his side during the whole House Speaker voting fiasco, and it turns out they're in pocket, they're in each other's pocket.
1: Because she has a following, she raises a, a lot of money, and she can gain a lot of attention. And so if if you look at the Speaker fight, part of what he had to do was get that group of Trump-affiliated members of the Republican Party to vote for him. Um, and for any Republican watching who's in that wing, having Marjorie Taylor Greene on his side is sort of like, well, if she likes him, he must be okay. So that doesn't necessarily mean, and it didn't in the in this instance, it didn't mean that um, Gates and Boebert and others were going to immediately go over to McCarthy. But as he needed leverage, it's crucial to have one of those types on his side. And also there's the old basic boring fact, you'd rather have him in the tent than out of the tent. But it's a sign of obviously how we've talked about this for a long time, but with such a narrow margin, every member is a king or queen, um, and she is playing that beautifully in terms of having dominance over him. It's really striking, though, her ability to play that role is is has a lot to do with the structure of the republican party in the democratic party members of the squad tried to play that role with pelosi and both because pelosi is more skillful than mccarthy and because progressives don't play the role in the democratic party that the the trump maga wing plays in the republican party um they didn't have the
0: same success are there any other reasons why mccarthy made this deliberate decision to keep the bomb throwing lunatic fringe close
2: I guess I would say there's a reason he didn't make the opposite decision, which is that there are no values driving his quest for power. This kind of idea that you got to keep this right wing close, I mean, it makes a lot of sense if you are looking through just a lens of political power, but it's so craven if you're (laughs) thinking about this as someone who has any sort of value system whatsoever. I mean, like you said, this is a woman who, I mean, and I... Uh, shamefully have to admit she's from my state. Like she <laughs> has espoused ideas that don't comport with any reality, much less sort of reasonable political perspective. But for him, it's most important to have the most support, right? And if that is your value system in the Republican Party, you're going to end up playing to the far right. That is the only option, right? That's the that is the side of the party that continues to expand. Um But it's also kind of notable how much of a politician she is, right? And you can tell that in kind of how this is playing out. Being on the side of power, building this faction of right, right, right right-wing Republicans who support Kevin McCarthy, like understanding the value of having him on your side. This is a woman who kind of came in and said, like, I'm nothing like these people. But the job changes you, right? And you can see that in how she's kind of proceeding,
1: the question, of course, is how long this relationship um, can can maintain. And there are two big threats to it. The one is that she, now that she's on these committees and has this position, um, you know, George Santo, Santos has kind of um, uh, obscured the challenges in the Republican Party at the moment because he's taking all the energy. Um, I mean, he's both obscured them and, of course, um, highlighted People are talking about Santos and not Marjorie Taylor Greene in the way they might otherwise be. But once she starts being on these committees and starts behaving in a way that continues to make her keep her popularity and keep her ability to raise money, um, that will pose challenges in defining the party in a way that McCarthy might not want, A. Um, You know, and then B, part of her shtick is and the shtick of the people that she hangs with is being uh, a thorn in the side of power and the washington swamp and the establishment and the only way McCarthy's going to get anything done is by doing some things and that will inevitably upset that group who is whose existence is to be upset
0: so john when it comes to the the way that she or her her faction within the house republican caucus could define the Republican Party. What are the specific examples of ways in which McCarthy either is going to have to like take the party towards them in ways that are going to be abhorrent to lots of folks or w- ways that he's going to have to break with them?
1: I think two, two ways. One is in any of these, um, investigative committee hearings, there are legitimate things to be investigated. There always are. Um, but if those get swamped by the biting the heads off of chickens and behaving, Extravagantly and weirdly in public, you then turn all of that investigative behavior into a clown show, um, and that might be good for the people who are watching on the partisan media. Um, but that's the you know maintaining your majority is not done strictly through feeding the partisan media. So they will, if the party increasingly gets defined by craziness, they're going to have to do things. Um, uh, to buck that. And when you have such a slim majority, um, that can mean you won't get, you know, the support of your party. Quickly, the other place it'll, this is going to come to play, the hardest thing McCarthy has to do, is on the debt ceiling, he has three options. One is to cave and just raise the debt ceiling. Second is to negotiate with the White House and come up with some tiny little cuts um, that allow him to say, we've gotten the budget on back on, on a track towards uh, fiscal sanity, and we've lifted the debt ceiling, there's no danger. If he does that, there's going to be some number of members of his conference, and many of them are in this wing, who are going to be outraged that it's just uh, the swamp has won, nothing's being done to spending, and um, he'll get a, he'll get attacked. Or they'll be successful, and the fiscal um, the fiscal radicals are slightly different than the sort of nationalist behavioralist radicals. But there are those who want to um, reduce Social Security and Medicare um, over time, and the party doesn't want that. Um, And then you have this weird group, which is both, they want to slash the budget, but don't want to touch those things, which is just mathematically stupid. So he has to navigate all of those issues. And anytime he takes a policy position, this group can cause him a headache.
0: Josie, the oversight committee has been packed with the troublemakers. So Boebert, Scott Perry, Paul Gosar, Marjorie Taylor Greene, among others, it used to be, this committee used to be kind of like, that's Clown Island, just go off. Now, because they're not actually going to be doing any legislating, the House Oversight Committee is going to be the center of House activity. Uh, What does that foretell?
2: I think it is a microcosm of the broader dynamic here, which is how, with the diminishing marginal returns of playing to people who are skeptical without reason, who are not even judiciously skeptical, are just skeptical as a like intellectual exercise or anti-intellectual exercise all the time, right? Because ultimately what is going, I mean, to the point about this relationship not being sustainable, we are seeing a group of people who um have no kind of skill at determining real threat from um From not real threat, and also know really well how to play to their base, have the power of distracting the the constituents from any sort of real thing that's happening, um, you know, in the near future. It really does seem like this group of people has the very clear ability to derail the already kind of flimsy (laughs) priorities of the general Republican Party, and especially as we're kind of preparing for 2024, right? I mean, this is a woman who wants to be Trump's vice president, right? That's what she wants to do. And we are gearing up for one of the more intense primary seasons uh, between Trump and, and DeSantis that I think like we've seen in a really long time. And so what I mostly take from this relationship is how unsustainable it is and what it says about Kevin McCarthy, you know, willing to kind of sacrifice it all in the short term to get the role, knowing full well that in within months this is... Going to become a huge problem for him, and that, especially Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greene, if she turns on him, is going to turn on him that much harder because she has now vouched for him publicly in a way that is going to come back and bite, and and bite everybody.
1: <laughs> the minute there is a tiny hairline fracture in the relationship, it'll there will be story after story after story about the breakup, and then others will want to get in on that action, um, and oh. Uh,
2: you know, the other thing here is just what do you what do you reward as a leader of a party? I mean, it's almost in a weird way like parenting. It's like rewarding the squeakiest wheel who, you know, is coming to you about their Twitter account um, to actually not just say, OK, I'll try to handle it, but have your actual staff spend hours trying to get her back. Her Twitter account, for example, what you are telling the rest of your party is that as long as they're a thorn in your side personality-wise, not even value-wise, but personality-wise, like that is a way, you know, to win. That is a way to kind of get what they want. And I just don't know if that's something you, you want to tell 200 politicians, 200 plus politicians. It's not It's not the message I would want to send.
1: Can I make one other point about the craziness is that we also, Mitch McConnell will have a role to play here, is to the extent that the Republican Party gets defined by Marjorie Taylor Greene, that's not good for Mitch McConnell who wants... Republicans to win in 2024 and take over the Senate, the like letting the party be defined by these forces um, and, and having these forces control primaries and put forward bad candidates that then lose when they should when you Republicans should win is is a problem for the party. And so like leaving the future of the party in Kevin McCarthy's hands is not something far-sighted Republicans are anxious to do.
2: And you can see how that just makes no kind of long term sense given what happened in the midterms, like, this isn't working. Marjorie Taylor Greene is not actually speaking to the people they need to get elected. It's not an effective tool, right? And it feels very different than Trump, where it was like, this is probably eventually going to be- fall apart. But in the meantime, people are responding to it. That's not actually even what we're seeing with, with Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's not actually representative Um of enough people in this party that is going to drive them to victory. So it's just such a pyrrhic victory to kind of rely on her, to get her on your good side.
0: Slate Plus members, we do a bonus segment every week for you. You go to slate.com slash Plus to become a member today. And you're going to want to do that because we're going to talk to Josie, Josie Duffy Rice, about her remarkable new podcast, Unreformed, which is about a truly disturbing, Institution in Alabama that damaged generations of black children. Ron DeSantis, junkyard dog, caught a new postal truck in his teeth this week. He loves nothing more than pushing the button, 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 buttons, buttons, all kinds of buttons that liberal professors have on their sleeves. He has just appointed six members to the board of New College, a public famously progressive, tiny liberal arts college in Florida. His allies will soon appoint a seventh board member shortly, creating a majority on the 13-member board. Uh, DeSantis also moved this week to block the teaching of an AP African-American history class in Florida public schools, saying that it lacked educational value. So, um, Josie, DeSantis is just engaged in this sort of all fronts assault on what he perceives as the, or what he wants to present as the kind of woke educational liberal establishment between the, this attack on the AP African-American history class and his attempt to take over new college, uh, which of those, which of those really struck you or they, which, which seems more significant.
2: I think that banning AP African-American history is so, yeah, it's so aggressive. It is such a statement. It's so harmful that that one I think scares me more, but you know, it, you, the college thing is also <laughs> so um, fascinating for its own reasons, and by fascinating, I also mean like harrowing. And the way that you know this party has been saying for years now that a parents need to have more you know decision making power in what their children learn; they need to be the ones driving what their children learn, and and also that colleges have too many snowflakes, and that. In college, you should have to learn everything. You should, you know, you shouldn't be limited by, um, by the perspective of your professor. You shouldn't, you know, have to worry that your professor is not willing to teach you stuff because they think you're too sensitive or they think you're too woke or they think. So it, it, both of these, right, are are just arguments that are just completely undercut by the choices that they're making. They're making it harder for parents, especially. And when they say parents, they mean white parents obviously they' they never ever ever mean black parents um, when they have these conversations I mean, it harder for you know parents of high school kids to actually make decisions about what their kids have access to and they are making it easier for college kids to be snowflakes. Um, and uh, so it, it's just a reminder of how little actual um, value these people like these arguments are based on these arguments are based on we want to ensure that th- these kids, um, and young adults learn only the things that reflect well on um, our party, our state,, uh, and our race. Um, and that is the way to kind of political power, keeping people from learning history is a really good way to ensure that they agree with you. Um, they have sort of no way of of pushing back. So it but it, it really is all just so terrifying um, this aggressive move to ensure that, Kids only learn what the governor wants them to learn. I'm really
0: confused. I have so many thoughts on all of this, but I'm very confused about whether DeSantis is doing this because he believes it's important, Uh, that he believes that, you know, politics is downstream from culture and no more important thing than to shape the values that children are taught and the way children are taught, and that has a long-term impact on the culture. Or because they're not important, they're just flashy and easy. That this is a that this is a uh, thing you can do to score a lot of points and get people worked up, but actually, it's not important in the way that that real issues are important, like economic development in your state or you know how does Medicare work. And I just don't have a sense about whether this is whether this is performative or sincere, and maybe it's both. Maybe it's both performative. Yeah, and it's disease.
1: both. Because a he believes that, but it has extra utility in those other areas you talk about, David. Because it wins you the power it wins you the power, and helps you maintain the political power that then allows you to go do those other things, which people either a don't pay as much attention to in the public conversation, um, or if they are paying attention to them in the public conversation, they grant you their approval because they know that you know and think the right things on these cultural issues. They grant him um, uh, power, and that's super useful for that other stuff. So I think it's got to be both.
2: I think only one of them matters, though, which is that he sees it as a means to an end. If he only felt like it was important, but he didn't feel as if it provided immediate political benefit to him, there's no way he would sacrifice any of his own political power to do this, even if he felt like it was really important. So in that way, I guess only kind of the second thing that you pointed out matters.
0: Yeah. I mean, so just to go back to the New College thing, he, he he's appointed these people to the board like Chris Rufo and various professors from Hillsdale uh, and Claremont McKenna, um, or maybe the Claremont Institute, I should say, uh, people who are kind of really excited about getting rid of the gender studies program at New College and teaching a lot more Shakespeare it's a really small college and the effect i mean a i don't think even at a really small college where you suddenly have a majority on the board that is conservatives i don't think that all of a sudden tomorrow the school radically changes but it is it is is, is—it it's certainly scoring a lot of points and it will make a lot of attention but it's just it is it's a college that serves 600 kids it doesn't it's not this is like uh you know, a minor offshoot of there are probably classes at University of Florida Gainesville that are bigger than all of New College. There are dorms like that are probably five times the size of all of New College. So it's not really like a this the, the most important uh institution of higher learning in in Florida.
2: That also plays to the opposite point about how what an impact it'll have. I feel like because it's so small, um and because there's if you're a professor there, that probably invokes kind of immediate fear on what you're doing because there isn't that there aren't that many kids to watch over. There aren't many classes to watch over. Right. Like the the truth is that if you see that the board is changing like this and you have any idea who Chris Rufo is like, maybe you tone it down right away um, and maybe it has an immediate impact off the bat.
0: Well, it is pretty clear that in Florida, not just a new college, but across the state, there is this fear that is constraining what people are teaching both at the high school and college and at the elementary school level. There are the laws about, you know, you can't teach anything about gender identity and, and sexuality to kids below a certain age. You can't teach anything involving critical race theory, which is a broad category, broad, so broad as to be meaningless. And so the, it's very obvious that teachers have vastly pulled back and are playing, being protective about what they're teaching because they don't want to lose their job.
1: I think the new college thing is a great experiment. I think it's fine to, I mean, there's, it's obviously the case that, that liberals and liberal ideology has an overwhelming effect on higher education all across the country. So why not have an experiment? However, the experiment is being carried off in such a ham handed fashion. I mean, Chris Rufo, who you mentioned, who I think is the distinguished chair of extreme self-regard at new college. It's special new posts they have is treating this like he talked about, like we're over the wall and we're into like, so this is basically, this is the intellectual level of, of the kind of the Twitter baity attention grabbing tweet, um, which is a shame because you could imagine uh, a more better way to uh, try to build the things that universities are supposed to build, which is, um, critical thinking, um, and a set of skills that will allow you to succeed in the world, not to just replace the left's indoctrination camps with the right's indoctrination camps. But more to the point is, if you were truly trying to spread conservative the conservative worldview, you would teach these skills that would make people successful and also expose them to whatever you think is the conservative viewpoint. But since it's just pure indoctrination, they won't actually gain the successful skills. And that's... That means they will, you know, be sort of a whole cl- class of graduates. In, in, I'm thinking about it, uh, in, in in the most successful version of this.
0: But you're 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 assuming bad faith on the part of the new college. Yes, this whole team, and that they're going to come in, and they are. Go- it's just going to be now. Now you're just going to learn Plato. Here's well, uh, yeah.
2: I mean, that's that. But they've been open about no. That. I, don't, I don't know that that's assuming
1: know.
0: bad No, I don't think that
1: uh, they've been pretty.
2: Chris well, Rufo it's, has been open. Chris about,
1: Rufo definitely has. That's what yes. I'm talking been about. Been I'm open. talking about Chris, yeah. Chris. Rufo, who's who's the kind of leading light of this group of. Um, Um, And there is a way to do this. I mean, um, I've talked to students who've been in um, Glenn Lowry's class at Brown, and even though they are still liberals, they have come out of their experience and exposure to him thinking that they have a better understanding of critical thinking. They have a better understanding of where conservatives come from. They know how to approach issues from multiple sides. I mean, if you were trying to create a free thinking college atmosphere in which people have a set of skills to evaluate the world and information that's distinct from whatever they may believe ideologically, you would want them to say the kinds of things that kids I've talked to who've come out of Leonard Lowry's class say. And that is not at all in evidence in any of the things I've read about the plans for new college. So um, that's why I think it has a limited utility, even if, you were, even if you had designs on making a new conservative army of you know, brilliant thinkers to go out into the world
2: and i would say like we're not actually talking about cons- like this is not a group of people who or chris rufo who is obviously the one i'm most familiar with is not someone who who is interested in adhering to some basic conservative principles like i think it's totally fine to teach kids history your teacher has a bent a political bent that you don't have and then you are exposed to a different perspective of how to analyze that history and what to take from it the the he's saying is we shouldn't teach this at all right uh like we shouldn't teach this history at all we don't that's not our responsibility because ultimately our value is not any kind of basic conservative principle it's like we don't want we don't want white kids to feel bad that's not a principle this kind of driving motivation that like actually is completely out of touch with um any sort of educational goal whatsoever that is rooted in building knowledge. So I'm not convinced that there is a possible way that this turns out well, unless somehow they just ignore the board, because what they are trying to do is so antithetical to any value of education whatsoever, regardless what side you come down on on politically.
0: I feel like that is foreshadowing an end that you just don't know. I, I think there are there's a college here outside of Washington called Patrick Henry College, which styled itself as sort of Harvard for Christian homeschoolers that my ex-wife wrote a book about. And it was an, academically, it was, in, it was really interesting. There were, there were aspects of it that were indoctrinating, but it was academically rigorous in certain ways that a lot of liberal colleges weren't. And the kids were really smart and really interesting and super
2: lively minds. I guess what I'm saying is that doesn't the point here seem to be that there is no in- interest in academic rigor? If we are unwilling to teach parts of American history that don't make you feel good, then academic rigor is not your primary motivation. Chris Rufo is not interested in academic rigor.
0: I, I, r- if you make it an argument about Rufo, I— totally concede but it's but i don't but rufo is one member of a board and there are these other people who come from hillsdale who come from the claremont institute who who I, I don't know enough about any of them but it does it did feel to me listening to them it was just like i'm a fogey and i want you to learn more shakespeare as much as it was stop learning about black history it was like like i think there are two. i think there's the there's the teach the canon view which is which is one form of fogeyism and then there's the don't teach any bad parts about American history, and don't mention slavery part. And the the one they're different. They they are different. They represent different threads to me.
1: They do, but we're, that's what we are saying is that, that that this seems to be more geared toward and towards and aimed towards being anti woke rather than pro canon. That sure, there are some members, but even those members who want to teach Shakespeare have this way of self-defining the mission as being not something else. There's not evidence in the, what I've read about this mission that has people saying, here are the principles of academic rigor, and those have been clouded by uh, uh, you know excessive attention on the left to their pet theories, and we want to make sure we don't have excessive attention to our pet theories, because the key here is a certain set of skills that you teach students, and those shouldn't be occluded by ideology. And maybe the way, and then you argue that Shakespeare and Cicero are the only people who can teach you those sets of skills, and that's your point of view. But that's not what comes across in the definition and the chest um, beating that comes from Rufo and others who were talking about New College. It feels like what's happened in political speeches, which is candidates used to go out and say, here's what I believe, and it represented their political ideology now basically they say here's what i believe and then they list 10 things that are awful about the other side you saw trump's 1776 commission do this it wasn't a reassessment of american history or a presentation of american history from a point of view it was basically here's why everybody on the other side is wrong but that that's not intellectually rigorous that's just using a different platform to make what is essentially a series of threaded tweets
2: i think what Ron DeSantis is doing is signaling, and he is signaling something very intentional with Chris Rufo putting Chris Rufo on the board. I mean, this is not a guy who's an expert in higher education. This is not a guy who's an expert in how government works. It's not a guy who, like, you know, is great at managing. He believes, like, that we should limit the ability for kids to learn certain things that he doesn't agree with. And that on its face says to me that, like, the goals here, are not what I would imagine at Patrick Henry, which are, we can actually provide you a very good education coming from a different kind of values-based perspective, which I think is a very laudable goal, aligns very strongly with the history of how we think about American education. This is saying the opposite. It's not like he's thinking, you know what, Chris is really controversial, but he's so good at what he does that I'm willing to put him on the board anyway. He's misunderstood. No, he understands exactly what Chris Rufo values, and that is what he's trying to translate to people.
0: That's absolutely fair. And, like, and when, when DeSantis is the, is the architect of the other side, is the wizard of the other side, it's clear like the motivations. You, you can't attribute too many noble motivations to it. Let me close with a different point, which is that one of the biggest divides in American politics is that the more educated you are these days, the more liberal you are. And the way the parties have split down educational lines and the educated elite is basically only is now the left is unsettling because part of what the cultural tribalism of the right is now adopted is this rejection of expertise, rejection of education that is reflexive. And that the left has kind of also, to a much lesser extent, has adopted a expertise is always right uh, position. And this is not healthy. It is not healthy. For higher education to be a province of the left and not of the right. And you want, we want a world where Republicans are as invested and as in, in love with, with uh, higher education as, as Democrats are, and that they value the degrees as much as Democrats do. And we're headed away from that world. And, and I don't think I don't, I'm not going to say that what DeSantis is doing is going to promote that, but I do think that it, that is a concern that, that we as a public need to think about.
2: The fact that education has been weaponized politically is bad for everybody. I don't think that's deniable. I think the problem is way more fundamental than more of these kind of people on boards, because I think what we come up against is that the more you know, the more educated you are about American history, the more the current Republican Party, not just conservative thought in theory, but the current Republican Party does not comport with you know, your understanding of American history. I think it is really hard to, you know, take a, have a liberal arts education and also, for example, sign on to a party that is like welcomed QAnon. It just doesn't, how are those two things going to exist simultaneously? So the problem to me uh, is that the only way that you can value higher education and also support this party is by your higher education actually not being an education. Right, because it it avoids it
0: it is always fun when both parties find someone to gang up against, and it would take a much bigger person than me not to have found glee and pleasure in the battering that Ticketmaster and his parent company Live Nation received this week at the Senate Judiciary Committee, inflamed by the Taylor Swift ticket fiasco. Senders from both parties have wailed on Live Nation as a vertical monopoly Live Nation controlling venues and tours, Ticketmaster controlling primary and also increasingly secondary ticket markets. And as a result, they've made it very hard for any competitors to rise up and offer artists a better deal or better ticketing opportunities or better touring opportunities. So Senators took a huge amount of pleasure making Taylor Swift jokes. Here are Amy Klobuchar, Richard Blumenthal, and Mike Lee.
1: I believe in capitalism. And to have a strong capitalist system, you have to have competition. You can't have too much consolidation, something that unfortunately for this country, as a uh, ode to Taylor Swift, I will say, we
0: know all too well. May I suggest respectfully that Ticketmaster ought to look in the mirror and say, I'm the problem. It's me. Uh, To be honest, I had hoped um, uh, as of a few months ago get the gavel
1: back but once again she's chair captain and i'm on the bleachers so
0: john did you enjoy this uh this whole situation and is it just fun or is it like a really serious issue
1: well to the extent that there is a possible bipartisan agreement on antitrust and the excessive market power of dominant actors like live nation and ticketmaster which is real and as anybody who's had to it's just kind of smashes the artists, smashes the the ticket purchaser. Um, and to the extent that there is, you know, agreement on things that need to be done because it goes well beyond Ticketmaster and goes into questions about enormous uh, companies like Google and Amazon um, and Apple and others, that's great because you need bipartisan thinking and a diversity of views on big, complicated topics. But you can also imagine that essentially what this was was an opportunity for everybody to, um, you know, enjoy a moment in the spotlight, beat up on a pretty easy bogeyman, and gain a lot of press attention. um, And then kind of, it's a spectacle. I feel like it was really, um, there was a lot of it in that camp.
2: One thing I read that I thought was sort of of interesting was, is, is the question about artists, what this does to artists? Because obviously Taylor Swift made news for kind of standing up against Ticketmaster, which I thought was wonderful. I've also heard that like Ticketmaster, that in some ways this does benefit artists. I'm not totally, I'm not totally clear on how, given what you just laid out, but that there are ways in which artists get to benefit from Ticketmaster's kind of evil. (laughs) um, And uh, while Ticketmaster is the bad guy, um, gets to play the bad guy. And so I do find it, I am interested in what's happening behind the scenes from artists, who obviously publicly are kind of, or are either saying nothing or are kind of anti-ticketmaster, but but in some ways it's benefiting them, and I don't I don't really know what those ways look like, but it must I imagine there must be some benefit to it, right?
0: One way is that with na- now with dynamic pricing, the tickets that can be paid in the primary market, the the prices you pay in the primary market, like it used to be, the ticket would be priced at two hundred dollars, you'd pay two hundred dollars, and then someone else would resell it for nine hundred dollars. And the, that ba- gain would go to the person who bought the ticket originally, the ticket broker who then resold it. Now with dynamic pricing, Ticketmaster can have these tickets fly up in value too and go from being two hundred dollars now they're priced at seven hundred dollars because they see the demand is there for seven hundred dollars, and the artist does better because the the artist harvests that more of that revenue uh, rather than than the broker who buys it. Which seems that seems fine. That's that is a, seems like a perfectly decent. Way to do about go go about it, um, but it is the artist is slightly hiding behind Ticketmaster and Ticketmaster hiking those prices. I like I actually come at this from a slightly different perspective, which is that it is absolutely the case. When I look at I, I talked to some of my colleagues who were trying to buy Taylor Swift tickets and then were buying tickets for another one of the big tours that started, and they were telling me what they were paying. They're paying a thousand dollars a ticket to go to Taylor Swift, and I was like, that is nuts. That's insane. Like you, how can you be doing that? That's just ridiculous. And then I realized, oh, I would do that for certain sporting events and so forth. So then I stopped being so self-righteous. Um, but it, I think what's happened is that we, because your home TV is so good, because home speakers are so good, because there's so much content available to you anytime. You can listen to any song. Last night I listened to a whole bunch of Shakira songs I'd never listened to watching on YouTube. It was amazing, amazing sound. Looked great. I got like a lo- close look at Shakira's face as she's doing all these songs. That the experience you can have an incredible experience as a consumer of music or sports or most forms of culture for almost nothing all the time. And like m- the pleasure that music brings and the cost that you pay for it. Whatever I pay for Spotify every month, it's like a gift from the gods. That if I'm paying Spotify. Thirteen dollars a month, or whatever it is, I'm paying them. It's it's like one one hundredth of what it's worth. It's one one thousandth of what it's worth to me. When you think about how how much pleasure you get for so little money,
1: isn't the artist getting screwed though by Spotify? So your happiness is coming at at the. I mean, right?
0: It's smaller artists who are getting
1: um, you know uh, who
0: get screwed by a marketplace in which there are only a few big actors. No, I, I think where I was going with it is, that, is to say that there's all this wonderful culture and, and music and, and sports created in the world. And basically it's created, there are two forces that create it. One is the artists themselves or the athletes themselves, because I'm conflating them. The other is the venue, the physical venue that makes it possible for you to go see it. So it's not just that that Taylor Swift exists, is that Taylor Swift performs in a place. And it is wonderful. And like... That those, this exists, and honestly, like a lot of times, you'd pay a huge amount for either of these things. What's infuriating about Ticketmaster and Live Nation is that they're responsible for literally none of it. You pay $900 or $1,000 for this Taylor Swift experience, and Taylor Swift maybe sees $300 of it, and the venue sees $100 of it, or I don't know what the exact numbers are. But it's it's ridiculous that the that Ticketmaster and Live Nation, which did not do anything except act as a middleman and kind of consolidate you know, the technology so that you could purchase it, um, that they get all this money off of it is absurd because the artists and the venue should get everything because they are the ones who are providing all the goodness to you.
2: I think the other thing that feels so frustrating for people is the trick, right? Where the ticket says it's $41 and then by the time you get to checkout, you've paid 400 for four tickets. How deceptive that feels, especially in an environment where you feel like, you know, I'm trying to support you. I'm trying to like support this artist. I'm trying to show up and you know listen to their music, and because I value them, because I do find this you know valuable. To feel like there's this platform in the middle that's job is to pull one over on you. Like it almost feels like I mean, the money is not besides the point, obviously, because that, that's the point here. But it does feel like the process, too, is so manipulative that it makes it just is leave such a bad taste in people's mouths inherently.
0: Let's go to cocktail chatter when you are yelling at the bots for stealing your Taylor Swift ticket and just knocking back drink after drink. What are you going to be chattering about, Josie?
2: Okay. I have a great cocktail chatter this week. I know you must know the feeling of when you read something and you think like, I wish I had written that. I'm so mad I didn't write that first. I have had that experience this week with a book I'd actually read before and reread this week and loved so much um, again, which is called The Uninnocent by Catherine Blake. And it is a, a book that tells the story of when she was in law school, her cousin, who was 16 years old, had a psychotic break and killed a child, killed a random child that he came across on a a bike path, basically. This horrible, unimaginable thing to happen to the child, obviously, and his family, and also her family, you know, who this 16-year-old made this horrible choice and ends up uh, being sentenced to life without parole. And Catherine just wrote a beautiful, just so fascinating and um, so introspective, book about that experience um, that uh just what is phenomenal i cannot recommend it enough i um was telling someone on the plane yesterday next to me to read this book who was who had not asked me what they should read so i'm clearly recommending it to people um randomly so i i just really 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 recommend picking it up again it's called the uninnocent
0: john what is your chatter
1: uh, my chatter is a double chatter. Um, we talked about Chat uh, GPT on this uh, show, and um, there is a version of Chat GPT which is um, called Playground um, that I th- that is um, a question and answer version of the artificial intelligence where you can ask it a series of questions and it will give you answers um which is a little bit different than what we talked about before which was you know explain the fall of the roman empire which is in fact a question um but it's not like a QA format that um that playground is that i was and i was playing around with it and it was incredibly um fun to ask you questions about about human flourishing and what makes good leaders and um Anyway, so uh, it was really fun to go play around with. So just search for Playground by OpenAI. The um, second part of the chatter is related to that, which is I had a delightful conversation with Mark Schultz, who's the associate director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development, which is, um, and he's the co author of The Good Life Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. Um, this is the famous Harvard study that's been going um, since the late 1930s. Um, in which they ask a variety of people about their lives. And the conclusion was um, connected to a co- the conversation we had about work last week, although um, it's something we didn't talk about, I don't think, in our conversation about the Washington Post piece about jobs that deliver meaning and happiness and so forth. Um, and that was this: the lesson that essentially it's human connection that leads to happiness in life, that um, the bonds you build and the intentional act of maintaining and nourishing those bonds um is what leads to happiness. And that the final point is that if you have regrets about personal connections, and this connects with Dan's Dan Pink's book about regrets, um, that even if you haven't talked to somebody for 20 years and you regret the either falling out of touch just because of the inconveniences of life or because you had a split in a otherwise good relationship, then you should go back and call that person or repair that um, breach because it ends up leading to happiness, even if years and years and years have passed in the interim. That's also news you can use to have a happier life if you are a GabFist listener.
0: My chatter is Slate-connected chatter, which is that uh, our Slate colleague Dan Koyce, who is a writer editor podcaster at slate has now a novelist and dan has written a novel called vintage contemporaries it just came out and i just tore through it it's wonderful and i recommend it wholeheartedly like just deeply it's a beautiful humane book it's about two women who are both named emily uh for reasons that are known only to dan but it does mean you're always wondering which Emily is are we dealing with, but that's an important question in the book. Uh, two women, both named Emily, uh, who meet in New York as recent college graduates in 1991. Uh, one working, starting to work in publishing; the other starting to work in in theater. And uh, and what happens with their friendship and how their life develops and it sort of covers them in catches them as, as their first out of college and then it catches them about 15 years later when their lives have changed and um the book is it's really beautiful and it's really it's a it's a book full of heart uh and it's just a lovely read i wish i could think of the right thing to compare it to i can't think of the right thing to compare it to nothing it's not there's not a lot that happens it's not it's not like filled with dramatic incident there're no aliens there's no sci-fi there's no fantasia it's just a it's just about some extremely appealing people and what their lives are like. Uh, and it's, it's beautifully written. So check out vintage contemporaries by Dan Kois. Listeners, you have sent us chatters. Please keep them coming to us. You email them to us at gavfest at slate.com. You tweet them to us at, at SlateGabfest, really sending us wave after wave. And this week's chatter comes from Farabi Cobb.
3: I'd like to recommend an article series for Cocktail Chatter. Check out the Greenville News, which is the local newspaper for Greenville, South Carolina, and their series of articles called The Cost of Unity. Reporters partnered with sociologists at Furman University to look at census data, wealth data, and housing records to show how Black residents have been displaced and left out of the city's revitalization over the last few decades. The article title refers to the new Unity Park that was open to great fanfare while residents in nearby neighborhoods struggle with crumbling infrastructure and rising rents, a great example of how systemic racism works to cause lasting harm, and a wake-up call for every community grappling with wealth inequality and housing affordability. Full disclosure, the lead researcher, Ken Cobb, chair of the sociology department at Furman, is my brother, and I'm extremely proud of his work on this project. Love the show and listen every week. Thanks so much, Farabi Cobb, Washington, D.C.
0: That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is senior director for podcast ops. Alicia Montgomery is the VP of audio. Follow us on Twitter at SlateGapFest SlateGabFest and tweet and chatter to us there. For John Dickerson and the always game, Josie Duffy Rice, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? So Josie is always working on something interesting. And I did not know until Emily chattered about it last week that she had a new podcast in the works, even though when we had lunch the other month, Josie I feel like you didn't talk about this podcast
2: I know we didn't get there
0: but Josie has a fascinating new podcast called unreformed and you know I'll just start by saying it is about what sounds like one of the most disturbing bad institutions in American history I mean tell us tell us what your what it is your podcast is about
2: Yeah, so the podcast is about a school in Alabama that was started in 1907, back then it was called the Alabama Reform School for Negro Boys. Um, And it was, this is after the convict leasing period when kids who got in trouble were basically sent to adult prison and then farmed out to do this manual labor, and it was horrifying. And so this was kind of the beginning of the juvenile justice movement. And the school was started by a black woman for black kids to help them if they had been accused of crimes. What quickly happened was that they couldn't afford to keep the school open. And they sold it to the state, and it turned into a functionally just a, a abuse factory. I mean, I there there are almost no words to describe how bad it was. A penal colony for children, is the way one person put it. A, pl- um, a, a slave plantation. A hundred years after slavery, is the way other people have kind of phrased it. So we focus on the 1960s, and we focus on the 1960s uh, for two reasons. One is that. Um, we, at the end of the 1960s, five girls at this institution ran away and ended up at the juvenile detention center and demanding to tell someone what was happening to them. And they told one guy, a white guy who worked at the center, uh, what was going on. And he decided to blow the whistle. And we kind of track what happened once, you know, the f- the federal government found out about how bad things were there, once a lawsuit was brought, um, and what happened to the kids and also what happened to um the, the guy who blew the whistle. His, it ruined his life. I mean, um, he's not the victim in the story, but it's worth noting just how much he went through to do this. Uh, the second reason that we focused on the 1960s is because we were kind of able to track down um, some people who are in their 70s now who were there in the 1960s. And we got to talk to them and ask them what it was like to go there. And it was a real reminder of how this place shaped kids' lives for the rest of their lives. I mean, this is a place that still haunts a lot of these kids, including Lonnie Holly, a very famous artist whose stuff is, you know, in museums across the world who was there as a kid and is still haunted by this place. The last thing um, I'll say about this project, which I'm incredibly proud of and has been 18 months in the working and um, and uh, a great team was on it, I think it turned out really really excellently. The last thing I'll say about it is that one thing we started realizing upon doing our research was how many kids had gone there in the 1960s and ended up serving life without parole or on death row. In other words, just the specter of state violence that defined these children's youth from the age of eight or nine because they had been caught out past curfew or trouble for truancy and how the violence they experienced there tracked their entire lives. Um, and, I mean, we're talking dozens of dozens of kids, once kids, now adults, who ended up on death row. And that's not because they were violent when they came into Mount Megs. It's because Mount Megs shaped the choices that they made for the rest of their lives. So um, um, I'm really proud of it. I hope people check it out. It is called Unreformed. And yesterday, episode two came out out of eight. So um, I'm, I'm looking forward to people listening.
0: How did kids end up at Mount Megs, which was what the school was renamed? Who would end up there?
2: A lot of times, kids ended up for small infractions, like again, like truancy or um, or being out past curfew, or you know, sometimes it was incorrigibility. They were arguing with their parents a lot or something. Another reason that a lot of kids ended up there is because their parents had died or they had nobody to take care of them. And and in the 1960s in Alabama, there was. Black kids couldn't go to orphanages or foster cares. There was no place for them to go other than the school. So a lot of kids who ended up there like weren't even accused of even small infractions, right? They just had, the state had no place else to put them.
1: What would have happened if they'd tried to reach authorities in 1958 or 1965 or one year earlier?
2: Not only could they have not had success if it was one year earlier, I think if they had Walked into that place and yelled something thirty minutes earlier. I mean, it might not have worked out. It Denny had to be there. Denny, the guy that they spoke to, and we talked to him. He's still living. We had, he had to be there at that moment. He had to be the one who talked to them, and he had to be willing to take that risk at that point in his career. And honestly, there, it it was. These children who had been subject to some of the most unlucky conditions. Got a real moment of luck um, by. It, walking in at that moment and talking to him and him willing to do something about it. But it's worth noting, Mount Megs is still open. I went there, okay? I couldn't get in the doors, but I circled the perimeter, uh, you know, a dozen times to try to see what I could see, um, you know, looking through the gate and stuff. It is open at this moment. And in fact, it's easier to find out what it was like in the 1960s than it is to find out what it is like today. The federal lawsuit mattered, right the federal kind of whistle the whistleblowing mattered, but it didn't change everything at all. Um, and I would not be surprised if some of the same problems that we saw then exist at this moment. For example, when I drove by, I only saw black kids at Mount Megs, right It's no longer called the Alabama Reform School for Negro children, but it, that's what it still seems to be from what I from what I could tell. Um, and so so it it really mattered that he blew the whistle, but it certainly didn't change everything.
1: That idea of luck um, really strikes me because one of the things that to me was um, so powerful about Colson Whitehead's The Nickel Boys, about the Dozier School, is that basically you were sent to Dozier for the sin of being mildly unlucky while being black. That the tiniest infraction, just being out after dark on a, on, on a road, was enough, and um, and that notion that unluckiness in an instant, and as you say, you it basically means, you know, it's possible that the rest of your life will be spent in some sort of facility.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of kids came out of this and managed to live really healthy lives and build families. And I mean, it's both a story of human resilience and a story of how one little shift at that age, I mean, at 12, 13, or even younger can really define the rest, the rest of your life. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I came into this story kind of only knowing the basics of it. And what I spent the past year and a half doing is really trying to see, well, what happened to people? Um, and that meant trying to reach out to a ton of people on death row. It meant trying to track down the stories of some of these people who've already been executed. It's very heavy, but it's we also tried to make it bearable because- you know, life is hard right now. Nobody wants to be sadder. So um, I, I think of it as an exploration of the human condition, both the potential for good and the potential for bad.
0: Well, the podcast is, is unreformed. You should absolutely listen to it. Uh, I have one question, which actually this conversation is sparking. I've been just reading with just such sadness and horror the stories about the, the, the six-year-old who shot the teacher in Richmond. Have you followed this, the six-year-old? And... And it's clear that everyone who dealt with this child felt that there was, you know, this child was dangerous and there was disturbed and the possibility of something terrible happening was profound. And yet the child was what remained in classroom. Um, what happens with, I know this is not, this is not the subject, but I just feel like you must be expert in this. If you have somebody who is, who is just a danger, who's so young, but is Is you know because of whatever it is, so sociopathy, who knows what is so dangerous. Where does a child like that go now?
2: You know, I mean, the short answer is that we don't really have a good way of dealing with kids um, who are faced, who have challenges that their parents or legal guardians can't handle. We just don't have a good place to send them. And it's reflective of the way we don't really have it for adults either. You know, when we, when adults are struggling with mental illness and there's women who say, my husband is probably going to kill me, or there are dangerous people in my lives, there's really no good middle ground of what we can do to ensure that they get the help that they need. I think what's important to recognize is that at that age, what the general understanding is at this point is not that oh, here's a kid who's inevitably going to try to kill someone. But here's a kid who doesn't have the tools necessary to emotionally regulate, who is faced with some emotional challenges that are beyond what most of what we see. And what they need is someone who knows how to deal with those challenges. And we don't actually train people or um, make those people available in situations like this. I mean, I agree that the gun is the problem, but it's not the only problem in a situation like that um, because what's necessary is for a kid like that to get the kind of help that they need. And one thing I really took away from Mount Meg's is just how how squishy, for lack of a better term, kids' brains are, how they can go from um, from one, one extreme to another, um, and how— how easily um, and deeply they can be shaped by the help that they get at a young age.
0: Josie Duffy Rice's podcast, Unreformed. Listen to it. Buy Slate Plus.